Uh, now, I was asked uh, to uh, do a presentation on symbolics. Uh, I spend about 50 hours of lecture on this course, and I have 60 minutes today. And uh, trying to, to sort out what to do and how to approach this. I decided that the best way to go would be to give you some of the introductory material which I present to uh, the class uh, lectures. So this, uh, this is uh, what you would get if you were in the class. I hope that I'll be able to get through all of the material. Um, the course description from our catalog, uh, it's a ST systematic theology class, uh, ST 535 Baptist Symbolics, four credit hours, hence about 50 hours of lecture. This course is designed to be a detailed examination of the London Baptist Confession of 1689 with the language explained, supported, and defended so as to understand what the early Baptists asserted. The purpose is to understand the confession in its historical setting and its relevance to the present. Historical comparisons will be made to the Westminster and Savoy Confessions. Other Baptist confessions will be considered as they relate to this document. That's the catalog description of the course. Um, now, we, of course, uh, when you teach a class like this, you always have to have required texts. And uh, the first of them is Richard Muller's book, Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, which I'll talk about again in a few moments. Uh, I like to, I ask my students the question, uh, have you bought your groceries yet this week? And I hope they say no, so that I can then say, go buy Muller first. It's that important. Uh, I just bought a second copy of this, so I have a copy at home in my office and a copy at the seminary in my office. Uh, I think it's one of the most important books and the most helpful books for a study of our confession faith. Uh, and then uh, I have them read my book, Edification and Beauty, which is uh, basically my Ph.D. dissertation. It's on the ecclesiology of the 17th century particular Baptists as they work that out from the confession of faith. And then also uh, have them purchase uh, True Confessions, which I think it was Rob Roy stood up yesterday and, and did an advertisement for that I didn't even expect. Um, are they gone now from over there? Are there any left? They're all gone? They're all gone. Okay. Uh, they're out of print. And uh, that's, that's it. We, now, I've, I have tried to find a way to put this into an electronic format. And those of you who've seen the book know it's in, co in columns. And it's very, very difficult to put that into a format that can be useful electronically. Uh, someone uh, is working on that for me. I don't know if we'll be able to do that, but I hope so. Otherwise, put pressure on Dr. Barcelos to reprint it. And then, uh, of course, we use Dr. Waldron's Modern Exposition of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, uh, urging the students to read the appropriate chapters prior to the lectures. And then... Um, I require them to obtain a copy of the Westminster Standards in their original non-American revised form. In 1789, the American Presbyterians revised the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith to meet the new political circumstances of the new country in which they found themselves. Uh, prior to 1789, the Westminster Confession requires a national church, but uh, the formation of the United States of America explicitly pre prevented the possibility of a national church, and so they had to change their, their um, confession of faith. I don't have time to follow up on this, but that makes American Presbyterianism inconsistent with itself, because originally it was written in such a form to, to demand a national church. They can't have that, so they're inconsistent with their own standards. Now, uh, I put this in here for you to see. The first known literary uh, reference to our confession of faith is from the church book of the Petty France Church in London. Uh, this is the church that Nehemiah Cox and William Collins served. They were ordained together on the same day in 1675. And uh, in this, uh, I had the privilege of being in London and uh, photographing this book, which is uh, at the Guildhall Library in the city of London. And uh, the note says, it was agreed that a confession of faith with the appendix thereto, having been read and considered by the brethren, should be published. And the note says, 26 August, 1677. That's the first known literary reference to our confession of faith. And it is thought, and I think that this is a fair conclusion, 
that the confession actually came out of the Petit France Church and that Cox and Collins were, are most likely the men who edited that confession of faith. Now, one of the things that I like to do when I, I consider uh, Cox and Collins as the editors, I imagine a table in a room and these two men sitting at that table and I can tell you what was on that table as they were working to edit the Confession of Faith. And we'll see some of that stuff as we move forward. It's really interesting to contemplate that. Uh, in fact, I'd love somebody with some skill to draw me up or to do a painting for me of two British Puritan looking guys sitting at a table working with the books stacked there. And then a bookshelf behind them where they would have some reference material and put the thing into its context. This is the title page from one of the first editions of the Confession of Faith. Um, a Confession of Faith put forth by the elders and brethren of many congregations of Christians baptized upon profession of their faith in London and the country. And then a quote from John chapter 5. And you notice at the bottom, printed in the year 1677. Now, you know, it's curious. We call our confession the 1689 Confession. It was never actually printed so far as we know, in 1689. There were two editions in 1677. There was one edition in 1688, and there was one edition in 1699. Now, why do we call it then the 1689 Confession? Well, the reason is that there was a general assembly of churches held in September of 1689 in London at the Broken Wharf Church, and it was there at that uh, General Assembly of Churches that the Confession was formally adopted. And that familiar statement uh, that we read, we have right here, came to us from that 1689 General Assembly. We, the ministers and messengers of, and concerned for upwards of 100 baptized churches in England and Wales, denying Arminianism, being met together in London from the third of the seventh month to the eleventh of the same, 1689. By the way, that's September. I get asked that question every once in a while. It says the seventh month. Well, if you think about it, September is the seventh month. New Year's Day was March 25th. And so you have September, seventh month, October, eighth month, November, ninth month, December, tenth month. And January and February would be the 11th and 12th months of the year. So it's not uh, the 7th month, which would be to us July, it was September. To consider of some things that might be for the glory of God and the good of these congregations have thought meet for the satisfaction of all other Christians that differ from us in the point of baptism, to recommend to their perusal the confession of our faith, which confession we own as containing the doctrine of our faith and practice, and do desire that the members of our churches, respectively, do furnish themselves therewith. So when they, they first adopted the Confession of Faith publicly and put their names upon it, uh, they, they did it for the purpose of helping others to understand what they were about. Basically, they're saying, we agree with you, except not on baptism, but largely we agree with you in the rest of our doctrines, and we urge our churches and our people to uh, have a copy of this so that they might be well instructed in the things that we believe. Now, I, I want to move on uh, to set some context for uh, these, this lecture this morning by looking at uh, a couple of paragraphs from what was called the Epistle to the Judicious and Impartial Reader. Uh, hopefully, all of us would be uh, judicious and impartial Readers, I'm getting a signal here that says the connection has been lost, trying to reconnect. That would be bad. <laughs> Let's oh, okay. Okay, well, let, me, let me go back then. All right, this is from the Epistle to the Judicious and Impartial Reader. And I think it's, you know, one of the, the, the concerns that I have in the 20th and 21st century about the confession is that it's often printed by itself without the epistle and without the appendix. In my opinion, it ought always to be printed with the epistle and with the appendix because they really set the context for what's going on in the whole thing. Here's some words from this epistle. One thing that greatly prevailed with us to undertake this work 
was not only to give a full account of ourselves to those Christians that differ from us about the subject of baptism, but also the profit that might from thence arise unto those that have any account of our labors in their instruction and establishment in the great truths of the gospel. Now, this was written in 1677, but that's basically what that statement that we just read, that famous statement says. Carrying on. In the clear understanding and steady belief of which our comfortable walking with God and fruitfulness before him in all our ways is most nearly concerned. And therefore, we did conclude it necessary to express ourselves the more fully and distinctly and also to fix on such a method as might be most comprehensive of those things which we designed to explain our sense and belief of. And finding no defect in this regard, in that fixed on by the assembly. Now, be, which being interpreted means the Westminster Assembly. Okay? In 1677, everybody who read this would have instantly known that they're referring to the Westminster Assembly. Okay? So, the way uh, that fixed on by the assembly is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay? That's what this is. And after them, by those of the Congregational Way. That's shorthand for the Savoy Synod. All right? So, you have the Westminster Assembly, the Savoy Synod of 1658. Because of uh, what they've written, we did readily conclude it best to retain the same order in our present confession. And also when we observe that those last mentioned, that is, the, those of the congregational way, the Savoy, uh, the men of the Savoy Synod, which is John Owen and Thomas Goodwin and others, uh, those last mentioned did in their confession, for reasons which seemed of weight both to themselves and others, choose not only to express their mind in words concurrent with the former in sense, so if you look at the Savoy Declaration, it looks like the Westminster Confession of Faith, concerning all those articles wherein they were agreed, but also for the most part without any variation of the terms. We did in like manner conclude it best to follow their example in making use of the very same words with them both in these articles, which are very many, wherein our faith and doctrine is the same with theirs, and this we did the more abundantly to manifest our consent with both in all the fundamental articles of the Christian religion, as also many others whose orthodox confessions have been published to the world on the behalf of the Protestants in diverse nations and cities, and also to convince all that we have no itch to clog religion with new words, but readily readily acquiesce, oh, there we go, acquiesce in that form of sound words which hath been in consent with the Holy Scriptures used by others before us. Okay, so they're, what they're saying is when there's commonality between the three confessions of faith, there is complete agreement between those three documents. That sets a context for how we can understand what we find in our confession of faith. We okay? Oh, yeah, I, I can read it. Thank you. Um, what they're saying is, if you want to know what something in the confession means, and it's shared in common by the three documents then go and read any of the authors who write about this who would have subscribed to any of those confessions of faith and you will be able to learn what we mean. You look at the broader context. You see, what do the Puritans say and, and what are they writing? And they're explicitly stating their agreement. And then notice the next terms that they use. Hereby declaring before God, angels, and men. Now, that's the language that Paul uses three times in the pastorals when he charges his young men. I charge you before God and the holy angels and Jesus Christ to do such and such, when he writes to Timothy. They use that language. That's how serious they are. Hereby declaring before God, angels, and men our hearty agreement with them and that wholesome Protestant doctrine, which with so clear evidence of scriptures they have asserted, some things indeed are in some places added, some terms omitted, and some few changed. But these alterations are of that nature as that we need not doubt any charge or suspicion of unsoundness in the faith from any of our brethren upon account of them. And then they say, 
In those things wherein we differ from others, we have expressed ourselves with all candor and plainness that none might entertain jealousy of aught secretly lodged in our breasts. Now, that's one of the charges that had been made early on against the particular Baptists when they appear, that uh, they publish these confessions of faith and they really look good, but they're not really what they believe. They have some other uh, bad doctrines that they're hiding from us. They want us to think that they're orthodox when they're really not. So they're, they're, they're again making a point that they had made 30 years before, saying this really is what we believe and there's nothing hidden that uh, behind closed doors we say or do. Um, so let me pick it up again. Entertain jealousy of aught secretly lodged in our breasts that we would not want the world, that the world should be acquainted with. Yet we hope we have also observed those rules of modesty and humility as will render our freedom in this respect inoffensive, even to those whose sentiments are different from ours. You know, one of the great things about the appendix is the way that they, they very humbly express their views of believers' baptism. They, they don't go in the face of the pedo-baptists. They say, we're convinced from Scripture of our doctrine of believers' baptism, and here's our explanation of it. Please receive it from us humbly. If, if you read that appendix, uh, you really will be blessed by the tone in which they present themselves. I think it's, it's very well done. Now, just to, uh, just to drive this home, I want to talk about the family tree, just for a moment, of our confession of faith. You have the Westminster Confession, which appears in 1646 and 47. Now, I wish that I could pause right here and tell the story of the two versions of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This, this is a story that's not often told. There were actually two. The one that we uh, most commonly see is not actually the one that was approved by Parliament. Parliament wanted to do some edits. They weren't happy with uh, the one that we usually see. And uh, they had a, a somewhat abbreviated version of the Westminster Confession. And I think that that's the one that our fathers used when they put together our confession, the parliamentary, rather than what we might call the Scottish version. We know it because it was taken to Edinburgh and printed there in Edinburgh, and that has become the, the standard version. The, the parliamentary version is very, very difficult to find, even in uh, the digital archives that we have access to. I, I do have a copy of it, but it took me a while to find it. You have the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then the Savoy Declaration of 1658, which was the Congregationalists' uh, revision of the Westminster Confession. And they purposely, they, they added to their confession something they called the Platform of Polity, which was a lengthy statement of how they viewed the doctrine of the church to be practiced um, among the congregational churches. And they purposely separated it out because they didn't want to make it uh, equal to an article of faith. They viewed the, the confession, the Savoy Declaration itself, as an article of faith that everyone ought to believe. But the platform of polity, because it was the area of difference between the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists, they, they segregated it out to say, these are our views, but we're not going to treat them at the same high level that we'll treat the rest of the documents in the confession of faith itself. Um, in, when, our, when our fathers, when it was probably Cox and Collins editing the confession, they would have had the, the parliamentary Westminster Confession on the table. They would have had the Savoy Declaration, the Platform of Polity. They had a copy of the first London Confession in the 1646 version on the table. And uh, that was basically what produced our Confession of Faith. Now, of course, they would have had a Hebrew Old Testament, a Greek New Testament, uh, King James Version Bible on the table with them as well. Interestingly, one thing that our fathers did was they took this material from the platform of polity that had been segregated out by the Congregationalists and put it back into chapter 26. They raised it to the level of an article of faith. But that makes sense. That, that's our distinctive, is our doctrine of the church. Who we are as particular Baptists, or to use the modern term, Reformed Baptists. We are distinct from others because of our ecclesiology. And so our fathers saw fit to raise this up to the level of an article of faith. And that's why chapter 26 is the longest chapter in our confession of faith. And then, of course, this was brought over to America in 1742 uh, with two articles that were added. It became the Philadelphia Confession of Faith. I always like to ask the question, 
who was the publisher of the 1742 edition of the Philadelphia Confession? It was Benjamin Franklin. And uh, if you get a Benjamin Franklin version of the Philadelphia Confession, it's worth a lot of money, uh, lots of money. So if you ever see one for $2 in a bookstore, buy it and then send it to me. <laughs> I've only ever seen one in my life. And it was actually here in Phoenix that I, that I saw it. Um, the 1742 Ben Franklin Philadelphia Confession. Yeah. All right, let's let's move on. I want to talk about some helps. Here again is Muller's book. This is a, a, one of the covers that you'll find: the Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, drawn principally from Protestant scholastic theology. You cannot, you cannot do any serious study of our Confession of Faith without this book. You cannot. Let me say it again. You you, you get my point. It's really important, really helpful. Don't be put off by the title, Latin and Greek Theological Terms. It's really very easy to get into. It's very accessible. Uh, there is an, in, uh, an English language uh, glossary in the back that will point you to the, the Latin and Greek terms. And once you get into any article, it's well cross-referenced, and you'll be able to work your way back and forth through the book. But uh, this is made of gold. It's incredibly important and incredibly helpful. Then the next help that I want to mention is this book, uh, Truth's Victory Over Error. Now, this is the Banner of Truth edition, which came out a few years ago. The subtitle is not exactly accurate. It says, A Commentary on the Westminster Confession of Faith. Well, it really isn't. But it's as close as you can get to a commentary on, on the Westminster Confession of Faith in the 17th century. Uh, what Dixon, David Dixon did was work his way through the confession uh, dealing with various uh, differences of opinion or deviations or false doctrines and showing how the confession refuted those false doctrines in the 17th century. So there's a lot of material in the confession that, that doesn't get treated at all in this book. That's why I say it's not really a commentary. It's Dixon's treatment of controversial issues in his day and how they are refuted by the confession of faith. Uh, nevertheless, it's incredibly helpful and very, very useful. And I, I don't have the time to show you uh, one of the examples, a simple example of how useful this is. But take my word for it. It's really worth uh, spending the money to buy this. Uh, Dixon was a, a Scotsman, a contemporary 17th century theologian uh, working with this document. And so far as we know, it's the only work of its kind from the 17th century on the Confession of Faith. Uh, there are other things uh, that I've been working with that I, I think uh, uh, are very helpful from the 17th century. Uh, one of them, I was just looking at Edward Lee's uh, system of doctrine, and I realized that the whole first part of that is structured just according to all of the chapters of the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's a very, very interesting observation that I made, and it becomes very helpful in seeing how a contemporary in a full-blown systematic theology follows the chapters and works his way through all of the doctrines and more. Uh, he deals with, with even more than, than is in the Confession of Faith. Uh, but that, that is, in my mind, going to be a very important book as I go forward with my work and notice what Edward Lee has to say. And then another help um, is the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, this, this is an incredibly important uh, help. I realize that it's very, very expensive, but your library nearby probably has access to it. Uh, words change over time. They're, they're constantly changing. The Oxford English Dictionary allows us to trace the history of the development of words in the English language. Uh, it's called a synchronic diction, a diachronic dictionary, in which it works its way through. Uh, the it tries to find the first appearance of the word and then the various alterations that are made in the senses of the word. And they give illustrations, which oftentimes are from the 17th century, and interestingly, oftentimes from religious books. You know, probably the largest segment of the book publishing industry in, in London in the 17th century was theology books. And so they make use of sermons and, and commentaries and theology books uh, to help us understand what words meant at the time. And I found this incredibly useful. Um, some of you will remember way back when our association began, and I did some presentations on, on the meaning of the word communion, and I argued that the word communion was the equivalent of the word that we would use to associate today. 
Well, the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, was incredibly helpful to me in pinpointing that, the sense of that term. So uh, you, I know that you can't go out and buy it. It'll cost you about $900 to buy the set. Uh, you can buy a CD of it for about $250. Um, still very expensive, but it's really useful, and any good library will have access to this, and uh, you, could, uh, you could take a look at that in a library. Then also, another help I, I want to talk about here is uh, the proof texts. Now, you know, the Westminster Confession was first published without proof texts. And uh, when it was submitted to Parliament, one of their requests was uh, they sent it back asking for proof texts to be added. And, and the, reason, uh, the reason that they didn't initially have proof texts was because they believed that, that, in a sense, the proof text would distract from the fact that this was a system that, taught the whole, that was taught in the whole Bible. That to tie it to a particular proof text is to miss the point that the theology reflects all of Scripture and not a particular proof text. But they had to put them in. Our fathers put them in as well. Um, what the proof texts do is they point you to what's called the exegetical tradition. That is, the long history of commentaries that were present and used by our fathers, accessible to them, in which the doctrines of the confession are established on the basis of exegesis in Scripture. So the proof texts are not specifically intended to be the only place where you would find that doctrine. But in a sense, what they say with the proof text is, um, go back and read the commentaries and see how in the commentaries, our exegetes ground the faith that we believe, ground our doctrine in the text of Scripture. And so just, just as example, some of the things that you might look at sometimes, although there, there's far too many for me to put on one slide. Matthew Poole's commentary. Um, Benjamin Keach uh, frequently quotes from Poole. He doesn't even name Poole. He just says, our annotators. And he means Poole when he does that. Of course, Matthew Poole died, I think, uh, when he got to about Isaiah 58. So others completed the, uh, the process for him, hence our annotators. Uh, John Trapp, who was a contemporary uh, and did a five-volume commentary on the Old Testament, which has been reprinted and is available. Um, the Westminster Annotations, uh, which are hard to find, but uh, they, that was an attempt by the members of the Westminster Assembly to uh, sort of do a big-time study Bible, in a sense. Uh, that's what they had. And then, of course, individual commentaries on various uh, books of the Bible. Ainsworth on the Pentateuch would be very important for the background of our confession when it deals with uh, the first five books of Moses. John Owen, in his massive and magisterial commentary on the book of Hebrews, would be another example of uh, a work that they would send people off to read. Um, and, okay, my, I guess, this didn't change, but that did. Okay. Um, another thing that I want to point you to is to our Continuing Education Program website. Uh, this is the front page. I just uh, did a screenshot last night for this. And if you go to the website, that's the address. And up on the upper right, it says sample lectures. Uh, you'll find three hours of material on the first London confession that you can, uh, you can watch for free. Uh, that's my, my full exposition of the first London. It'll give you a sense of what we're doing. And uh, this whole symbolics class is available in our CEP right now. So if you wanted to sign up, you could take the, uh, the symbolics class that way. All right, so those are helps. Now, a couple of comments on the internal structure of the confession. Um, I, I'm going to argue in a minute for an outline of the confession that I think is really important to understand. And I'm going to break it up into four parts. Now, in these parts, especially the second and third, in my opinion, the initial chapter of the section gives you the basic doctrine, and the subsequent chapters then flesh out various aspects of that basic doctrine. All right, so that's what I mean here in the sections, the first chapter of each. It gives you the foundation that then is worked out in other places in the following uh, chapters. And then interestingly enough, almost every chapter is structured the same way. 
where the first paragraph of the chapter gives you the basic doctrine, and then the subsequent paragraphs of the chapter flesh out various aspects of that doctrine. Almost always that's the case. There's one or two exceptions, but almost always that's the case. And that that helps me to think through what's going on in this chapter. Here's the basic doctrine. Now, here's how it's worked out in various ways. And then one more thing that, that I want to say here. It's a woven document, and it has to be read back and forth. Now, what I mean by this is that in the early part of the Confession of Faith, you have foundational doctrines that prepare the way for things that will be discussed in detail later on. And you need to always, always ask yourself the question early on in the confession, what does this anticipate that may appear later on? And when you're later on in the confession, you want to ask the question, what does this fulfill? What what does this point backwards to? What's the basis earlier on in the confession for this? So you read it back and forth. I, I think that sometimes we approach the confession of faith, 32 chapters, as if they are individual segments of doctrine that don't have a relationship to each other when actually it's very tightly woven together. And you always have to ask the question, what does this anticipate or what does this fulfill back and forth, back and forth? Sometimes uh, they'll be close together. I hope to show you an example of that in a minute. Sometimes they'll be far apart. Uh, For example, the question of the immortality of the soul which is addressed early on, is very important when we come to the doctrine of the resurrection at the end of the confession of faith. What it says there about the immortality of the soul is based upon what we learn in the chapter on creation, which is chapter 4. So you have to think back and forth all of the time about the doctrines in the confession. Now, at this point, I want to to give you uh, the outline of the confession. I think that this is really important. I'm a person who is a big picture person. I need to see the forest before I see the trees. I want to know the whole landscape. And uh, I think in order to understand the confession and the development of doctrine in the confession, the outline is very important. So here it is. It breaks up into four parts. You have the first six chapters, which I'm going to call first principles. Then we have part two, unit two, the covenant. And this is chapters 7 through 20. Then unit 3, God-centered living, freedom and boundaries, chapters 21 through 30. And then finally, um, the world to come. See, we're we're waiting for the world to come. (laughs) Chapters 31 and 32. Now, let, let me go into more detail on this and explain to you what's, what's happening in these four, um, the, uh, these four units. First principles, chapters 1 through 6. Of the Holy Scriptures, the first chapter. Now, in Reformed Orthodox uh, theology, this is called the Principium Cognoscendi, or the principle of knowing. Muller's Dictionary defines it like this. The prin- Principium Cognoscendi The principle of knowing or cognitive foundation is a term applied to Scripture as the noetic or epistemological principium theologiae, without which there could be no true knowledge of God and therefore no theological system. Why does our confession of faith begin with a chapter on the Scriptures? Because we can't know anything about God without the Scriptures, you see. We have to begin there. And so this is classic Reformed scholastic theology here to begin with a chapter on the scriptures and set down the foundation and give us the building blocks from which all of the rest of the doctrines are based. Okay, So they're making a very important statement here that everything else that comes afterwards is found in scripture, is based upon scripture, comes out of scripture. And uh, then um, we move on. Uh, Paragraph 2 is, or, or the second part of the first principles is the doctrine of God. This is the principium ascendi, the principle of being, which Muller defines this way. The principium ascendi, the principle of being or essential foundation, is a term applied to God considered as the objective ground of theology without whom there could be neither revelation nor theology. So you, you, you move from the principle of knowing to the principle of being, and you have God. And we are presented with 
the reality of who God is. And if we don't have that, if we don't get it down just right, then we can't move forward with our theology at all. Again, this is just classic Reformed Orthodox scholastic theology in confessional form. Uh, In the 17th century, I think they all would have recognized this immediately. Um, In the doctrine of God, then, you have chapter 2 of God and of the Holy Trinity, which speaks to God's nature. Chapter 3 of God's decree, which speaks to us of the decrees of God. And then a pause. The Baptist Catechism here asks the question, what are the decrees of God? It gives us an answer. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And then the next question is really important. How does God execute his decrees? The answer is, God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. Now, back to the confession. Think about the structure here. You have the the principle of knowledge, the Holy Scriptures. You have the principle of being, which is the whole unit. Then you have God's nature and God's decree. And then, how does God execute his decree? In the works of creation and providence. Next chapter, of creation. And then, chapter 5, of providence. You see, this is very familiar territory, but this is the way that they thought. We have God's internal being, his his work ad intra, and his work ad extra in creation and providence. And then, a necessity to move forward is a chapter on the fall of man and sin and of the punishment thereof. And those are the first principles. That's the foundation upon which we begin to build a system of theology. Okay, now we can move on. Um, maybe. Unit two. There, okay. Unit two is the covenant. Okay, there we go. B.B. Warfield, in his work, The Westminster Assembly and its Work, says this. The architectonic principle. That's great language. But it just means the skeleton, the architecture, you know, the... The nuts and uh, the the the, uh, the the two by fours or four by sixes or, or whatever they are that, that you build on. The architectonic principle of the Westminster Confession is supplied by the schematization of federal theology, covenant theology, which had obtained by this time in Britain, as on the continent, a dominant position as the most commodious mode of presenting the corpus of Reformed doctrine. Now, to simplify that. The, the skeleton of the confession is the doctrine of the covenant. That's what he's saying, you see. Now, that's really, really important to understand because it structures all of the confession from chapter 7 through chapter 20. It's all about the covenant. And notice how it works, very interestingly. You have the covenant, chapter 7 through 20. Chapter 7 itself, remember what I said, the first chapter at the head of a unit gives you the basic doctrine. Chapter 7 is the chapter of God's covenant. And it describes to us, from a Baptist perspective, the nature of covenant theology. Um, If we'll have time, we'll see how the Baptists change uh, the doctrine of Westminster and of Savoy. All three of them are different because there are varieties of covenant theology in the 17th century. There's actually a couple of versions of Presbyterian. There's a a Congregationalist version, and there's a particular Baptist version, and we can see that. So we have God's covenant defined for us in chapter 7. Then we have Christ the Mediator, the covenant head, presented to us. Um, Time is running away, but it's really interesting. If you look at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, they're intimately tied together by reference to the covenant of redemption. Uh, You can't miss it. Chapter 8 is put there on purpose to speak about Christ as the head of the covenant. He's the one who brings it to pass. And chapter 9 of free will presents to us the covenantal setting. we're, we're, We're beginning to talk about the salvation of man. That's what the covenant is about, about God's purpose of salvation. Our confession focuses on the covenant of grace rather than the covenant of works. Um, it moves forward to speak to us about salvation, and so we need to think about uh, man's will. Man's will as he is created, uh, then as he is fallen and in need of covenantal grace, renewed as exercising covenantal grace, and then perfected. All right? So we have, we have these three chapters 
The first one, chapter 7, lays down the basis. Chapter 8 shows us Christ. Chapter 9 provides us with some information that helps us to move forward into the doctrine of salvation. Now, have you ever noticed that the order of chapters from 10 through 18 in our confession does not follow our typical ordo salutis? The most obvious way that that's demonstrated to us is that chapter 11 of justification precedes chapter 14 of saving faith. And usually when we talk about the ordo salutis, we speak about faith, which is the instrument that brings about justification. Now, why? Why did they put justification before faith? That's an interesting question. And there's a very specific reason for uh, the, the, the way that the, the chapters of the confession are ordered from 10 through 18. Again, I go back to Muller to help us. Chapters 10 through 13 are what I call covenant blessings. That is, they are the acts of God on behalf of his people to save them. Now, Muller, under one of his entries called the Foetus Monoploron, says this. And he's talking about the covenant of grace here. A one-sided or one-way covenant, the covenant as bestowed by God and exhibiting his will toward man. Since the foundation of all divine covenants is the eternal will of God, and the purpose of all divine covenants is ultimately the fulfillment of God's will to the glory of God alone, God's covenants, both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, are declarations of the divine will towards man, and thus one-sided, monoploron, rather than being covenants arranged by the mutual consent of parties for their mutual benefit. Even though the covenants include man and are to his benefit, man has no part in the arrangement of the terms of the covenants, both of which are bestowed, as it were, from above. All right. Now, that's, that's viewing the covenant of grace from the divine perspective in arguing that it is a one-sided covenant. And so what we have in, this cha- uh, in, this, in the structure of the confession here are the acts of God in saving his people. Effectual calling. All right? Who does that? God the Holy Spirit does that, does he not? Justification. Who justifies us? It's God who justifies us by Christ. Adoption. Who adopts us into his family? It's God who adopts us. And then sanctification, uh, 13, is sanctification. There it is. Uh, Initially, in the chapter, describes God's work of setting us apart for himself. So we have presented to us the covenant blessings that come to us in salvation from the divine perspective, what God does. But then, then, In the next section here, we have covenant graces, which are the acts of man. Again, now from Muller, foitus diploron. The other one was monoploron, one-sided, diploron, two-sided. Two-sided or two-way covenant. At the point at which man enters into God's covenant, receives the terms established by God, and in effect becomes a partner in the covenant with God, the covenant of grace can be termed a two-sided covenant. Since the covenant was ordained by God alone and cannot be entered by fallen humanity unless God provides the grace necessary to regenerate the will and draw man into covenant, the covenant is initially one-sided, but once an individual is drawn into the covenant and his will is regenerated, the covenant appears as two-sided. So the same covenant, now from the human perspective, after God has acted, what do we do? Now think about the order of the chapters here. Really fascinating stuff. Covenant graces, man's acts, saving faith. Who believes? We do. Now, that faith has to be granted to us. We don't become Arminians at this point. God grants the faith. But we are the ones who believe. Fifteen, of repentance unto life and salvation. The the twin grace of faith. Who repents? We repent. Sixteen, of good works. Who does the good works? Well, it's God's Holy Spirit in us, but we do them. 17. Of the perseverance of the saints. Notice it's not the preservation of the saints. It's the perseverance of the saints. We do, we are preserved, but we are called to persevere. And then 18. Of the assurance of grace and salvation. God grants to us assurance, but who enjoys it? We do. See, in Uh, 14 through 18, we have the covenant viewed from a human perspective. It's now a foetus diploron. 
And uh, that's the structure of these chapters on the covenant. And now it makes sense why justification precedes saving faith, you see. Because it's God's act. And it must come first. Uh, This could be ordered differently according to the Ordo Salutis as we know it today. But that's the reason that you have these these, uh, chapters laid out the way that they do. And then there's one more section in, in, uh, or subsection in the part of the covenant, the means of receiving the covenant, and you have the law of God, chapter 19, uh, believe me, it's there, and chapter 20, of the gospel and of the extent of the grace thereof. So that uh, we, we now are condemned by the law, shown our sin by the law, and then the grace of God in the gospel, and how it, it spreads around the world is stated to us. So that's the second major section in the confession uh, of God's covenant. Now, let's move on to unit three. This is a really interesting one, uh, in my opinion. The first principles, one through six, the covenant, uh, seven through 20. And then the third section or the third unit, God-centered living, freedom and boundaries. Dear brothers and sisters, I don't think that we understand how important the doctrine of Christian liberty is. Three quotes for you that are amazing. John Calvin from Book Three of the Institutes. Calvin says this. We are now to treat of Christian liberty, the explanation of which certainly ought not to be omitted by anyone proposing to give a summary of gospel doctrine. For it is a matter of primary necessity, one without the knowledge of which the conscience can scarcely attempt anything without hesitation. In many must hesitate and fluctuate and in all proceed with fickleness and trepidation. In particular, it forms a proper appendix to justification and is of no little service in understanding its force. But as we have said, if the subject be not understood, neither Christ nor the truth of the gospel nor the inward peace of the soul is properly known. John Owen. This one is amazing. John, where are you? The second principle of the Reformation whereon the reformers justified their separation from the church of Rome was this, that Christian people were not tied up unto blind obedience unto church guides, but were not only at liberty, but also obliged to judge for themselves as unto all things that they were to believe and practice in religion and the worship of God. They knew that the whole fabric of the papacy did stand on this basis or dunghill, that the mystery of iniquity was cemented by this device, Namely, that the people were ignorant and to be kept in ignorance, being obliged in all things unto an implicit obedience unto their pretended guides. The second principle of the Reformation. John Owen is my favorite theologian. If you came to my house, I have an oil on canvas painting of John Owen in my living room. My favorite all-time theologian. Apart from Nehemiah Cox, I guess. Samuel Bolton. There are two great things Christ has entrusted into the hands of his church. First, Christian faith. Secondly, Christian liberty. And as we are to contend earnestly for the maintenance of the faith, as the apostle saith, Jude 3, so also for the maintenance of Christian liberty, and that against all oppuners and underminers of it, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. That's from page 8 of the 17th century version. The banner edition, it's on page 20. It's slightly modernized, but it's basically the same thing. That's pretty powerful stuff, isn't it? You see, what our Puritan fathers did, they, chapter 20 in the Westminster Confession, or 21 in the Baptist Confession, Westminster doesn't have the chapter on, on the Gospel, uh, chapter 20. This was not just put there because they needed to say something about Christian liberty. It was put at the head of an entire section because it is of fundamental importance to understand. So you have this whole unit, God-centered living, freedom, and boundaries, in which Christian liberty is worked out in many different ways. The basis is the doctrine, the first chapter. And it contains that great statement that God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the commandments, the dictates of men. That's the basis. Christ has purchased it for us. It belongs to us. But how is it worked out? Well, it's worked out in the following chapters. The principles of Christian liberty are given to us. The worship of God in chapters 22 and 23. The, the, the regular principle of worship was constructed to protect the liberty of God's people. Our fathers believed that anything that was introduced in worship that was not 
commanded in Scripture was an intrusion on the liberty of God's people. To make you do something in worship that God has not commanded is a violation of your liberty. That's why chapter 22 follows chapter 21. So you have uh, religious worship and the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day, so you have the practice of worship, how, how we are to worship God, and then the day of worship, how we're to keep that day. That's a matter of question, isn't it? What, what do I owe on that day? What am I free to do or not to do? The doctrine of Christian liberty has a direct relationship to it. Uh, 23, of lawful oaths and vows. We don't have time to notice that uh, chapter 23 begins with the words, a religious oath. It's, it's about worship, not public worship, but private worship. What, what, where am I bound and where am I free in terms of, of oaths? There's a fascinating discussion about things like the oath ex officio, which our Puritan fathers hated as strongly as you could possibly hate anything, the oath ex officio. But we don't have time to go into that right now. The civil magistrate. What are your responsibilities to the the duly constituted government in the place in which you live? Are you free to do as you please? No, there are restrictions to our liberty. And so that's defined for us. Chapter 25 of marriage. Are you free to marry anyone? Are there any restrictions on our marriage? Well, chapter 25 addresses those questions. It gives us definition that helps us to understand our Christian liberty in terms of marriage. And then chapter 26 through 30 on the church, a whole subsection. Notice sometime when you read chapter 26 through 30 how frequently the lordship of Christ is emphasized there. Christian liberty is about obedience to Christ the Lord, you see. And the way that our ecclesiology is worked out is really expression of what our Christian liberty is about. So you have chapter 26 of the church, which deals with the church universal, the church local. Uh, Chapter 27 of the communion of the saints, a neglected chapter, but a very important one that talks about my obligations to you. When you're in need, what what do I need to do to help you in time of need? What What are my obligations to you at that moment? Uh, chapter 28 of Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, chapter tw- uh, 29, uh, 28 gives the basic doctrine, and, and take a look at it. And notice how the first paragraph, at least four times, emphasizes the fact that Christ is the Lord over baptism. I, I mean, they almost overdo it. It's like sometimes the Apostle Paul does. He just keeps going with something. It's as if he wants to say, Are you getting my point? And that's what they're saying to us. Are you getting the point? We practice what we practice because Christ is Lord over baptism. And we must obey him. Not the traditions that come to us from Rome. We must obey him and give baptism only to those who are able to profess their faith. Chapter 29 works that out in more detail. And then, of course, chapter 30 of the Lord's Supper. That's, that's the third section of the confession. And it all relates to questions of Christian liberty. And then finally, you have the the fourth section of the confession. You have first principles, the covenant, God-centered living and boundaries, and the world to come. And there we have uh, 31 and 32. uh, Of the state of man after death and of the resurrection of the dead, the intermediate and resurrection states. And then finally, 32 of the last judgment. That's how it's put together. For me, that's really important material to think through the whole system. Why is it ordered the way that it, that it is? How, what were they thinking when they put it together? What were the reasons that these chapters are placed where they are? And it all makes sense, I think, when you see it put together in that way. The, the, the first principles, the, 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 the well-known, well-established, reformed scholastic principles uh, of um, knowing and being the doctrine of God, then the covenant Think, uh, moving towards God's blessings in salvation, Christian liberty, the second principle of the Reformation, and then finally, of course, the world to come. John, what time am I to end now? Or is it 10.05? Okay, I, good. Now, I, I have more than I can do in five more minutes, but let me try to give you a couple of ideas here. What about editorial principles? What about uh, some of the changes that were made in the confession. A couple of things that I want to say here. Our confession of faith largely follows the Savoy Declaration. And here, 
you have this is from my book, True Confessions. You can see how uh, on the right hand column is Westminster. In the middle column is Savoy. On the left is Second London. And you can see how uh, Savoy significantly changed the material from Westminster and our fathers followed them. Uh, most of the time when there are changes made, our fathers were following the Savoy Declaration. Sometimes, though, at least 11 times, they go back to the Westminster Confession and restore some of its readings. Uh, here you see in Westminster and Second London, this is from Chapter 10, Paragraph 3, that they, introdu- they reintroduce the phrase through the Spirit. So the, I know that on that table they had a copy of the Westminster Confession that they were consulting, and 11 times they brought that material back into the confession. Uh, sometimes, that was an, an over it. Here's a, a more subtle one, and that's a tiny little red arrow, but you'll notice the any that they brought back in. Uh, this is chapter 16 of Good Works. Um, some changes are expansions of thought. Now, I realize that the, the print is very small, but this is uh, chapter 11 of Justification. Um, our, uh, the, the Savoy Declaration saw the necessity of um, adding to the statement on the righteousness of Christ a statement of the imputation of his active obedience to us. It's not present in Westminster. It's an interesting discussion as to why it's not present in Westminster. You have to read Chad Van Dixhorn to get that. But our confession of faith is expanding and quite explicitly requires of us a doctrine of justification that includes the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. One of my colleagues in Escondido told me uh, that, that uh, he thought that that was a great and important addition to our confession of faith. He wishes it was in Westminster. Um, yeah, ours is better. <clears throat> Many changes are simply clarifications. Now here, it's interesting. Uh, this is, uh, Westminster is the, the column with the, uh, or actually it's Savoy and Westminster both, uh, this is from chapter 8 of uh, Christ the Mediator. And you notice that when they speak of, of our Savior's birth, they simply say that he was of Mary's substance. But in the Baptist Confession, you have a much longer statement that's added. And the reason for that is that among some of the, the general Baptists, the Arminians, they had a, uh, a heretical Christology in w- that denied the true humanity of Christ. And so our fathers expanded on that statement of her substance sort of to go overboard to make it clear that he really and truly was a man like us. So that's the reason for that clarification. Um, another thing that's really, really important is the deletion of terms or phrases does not necessarily imply the rejection of a concept. That's, that's a simple mistake that people make. Oh, look, it's not there. They must have rejected it. Well, if that's the case, sometimes we have problems. For example, here... Notice, this is uh, again from chapter 8, speaking about Christ's death. Uh, In his soul and most painful sufferings in his body was crucified and died. And then they left out and was buried. Why isn't it there? Did they, do you think that they denied that he was buried? Obviously not. Sometimes what we need to do is remember that the Baptist Catechism helps us. I I won't read this. It's a statement that says, Uh, they're working out the doctrines. But notice here in the Baptist Catechism, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born in that low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Uh, the, The Baptist Catechism is in some ways an expansion of thought of the Baptist Confession. So they didn't deny at all that he was buried. So you have to be really careful not to draw that conclusion. Look, the covenant of works is absent, so they denied it. Uh Uh-uh. I wish I had time to refute that one. It's just not true. All right. A couple more things here. I think I have one minute. Um, Additions are often expressions of specifically Baptist thought. This is chapter 7 of the covenant, and you notice that they're all different. You also need to realize that there are printer's errors. Uh, this, this is the most obvious one in the proof texts. It says 1 Corinthians 4.10. I've had a couple of people send me emails and say, I can't figure out what they're getting at there. Well, that's because it should be 1 Corinthians 10.4. And as soon as you see 10.4, you say, oh, yeah. 
So whoever was the printer was having a bad day at that moment, and he reversed, reversed those things. And, you have to, and, and that has been perpetuated in all the modern editions, that error. See. So if you have a modern edition, you probably have that error in it. There are also some textual changes in later editions that you need to be aware of. Uh, this is from chapter 19. Uh, at the end of the paragraph, it's talking about the moral law or, or the judicial laws. They are of moral use. And I had to scan in uh, this copy um, that I have, but it said modern use. I don't know how it got changed to modern, but it's not modern. It's moral use. There's a couple of places in modern editions that do that. Um, two more things to say. Capitaliz- capitalization is generally unimportant. Don't pay any attention to it. I can tell you about that later. Uh, punctuation. The semicolons in the confession, in the, in the chapters, generally serve as dividing points. And you want to notice the beginning and the end of the semicolons, and everything between them is telling you something as a unit. So pay attention to those things. Don't just look at a word, but look at its context and notice the semicolons and how they mark out units of thought within the sentences. This is the concluding prayer. We shall conclude with our earnest prayer that the God of all grace will pour out those measures of his Holy Spirit upon us, that the profession of truth may be accompanied with the sound belief and diligent practice of it by us, that his name may in all things be glorified through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.